Hello and welcome to the second special edition of The Stack, highlighting some of the best interviews we did this year. I hope you enjoy the show. From Midori House in London, this is The Stack. 30 minutes of print industry analysis, and I am Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Last week we had our first best of the year, and now it's time for a second one, because we had plenty of great content here on the stack. We start the show with the editor of a title that I love. In fact, I subscribe, of course, to the Financial Times, but every time the FT Weekend comes, I want to open the latest edition of HTSI, which is edited cleverly by Joe Ellison. I had a pleasure to speak with her. Let's have a listen. I'd worked on a, you know, a glossy monthly publication at British Vogue for seven years. And so I had a real love and experience of like putting together a magazine. And I still really kind of relish that opportunity, even though there are fewer and fewer magazines to do that with. And HSI was always this kind of like tantalizing possibility in the room that was like if you could only kind of get your hands on that the things you could do so you know it was always like it was always such a kind of golden sort of like opportunity besides the changing name about a year ago or so i mean what else because you did bring some new kind of features to the magazine of course it's the magazine that we all know and loved for many years but there it feels fresher if i may say oh that's very kind of you i think when i came the magazine had been conceived in the late 90s and it was very much i think in response to a moment then where there was a big city bonuses and i think the magazine had been kind of conceived as this sort of very city focus like where to spend your bonus focus and i suppose over the years i mean it had been 25 years i think when i got there or we celebrated that anniversary really soon after I think what I was thinking of is what is the kind of consumer landscape now? What does luxury mean to people? And I think it was about maybe slightly loosening up some of the definitions that had come to define the magazine as it was. And I think I wanted to really bring out more of the lifestyle content and look at a kind of broader spectrum maybe of things that might fall under the kind of language of luxury. So there was a real opportunity to talk about like health and wellness, which I don't think had been massively covered beforehand. There was a lot more focus on interiors and houses, like how people live, what their house style is, rather than design focused stories that were merely talking about selling furniture. I think it was a bit more about offering curations and sort of a different lifestyle so that people could look at it from a slightly more inspirational point of view than a go out and buy this point of view. Definitely. And talking about buying, actually, I did enjoy the gift oh, issue, yeah. which I think is <laughs> from last week. No, it's, it's amazing. It, it was amazing. So it was still definitely like a guide of things to buy. But, it, you know, it just felt kind of natural and lovely. And... I mean, I think the essence of how to spend it in its original ethos and mandate and what we all still think today is like it's about celebrating and champion championing things that we love and things that we think you should like know about and obviously we are a consumer title so a lot of those things are available to buy so you know we haven't kind of lost sense of like the fact that we're not we're a consumer title it's just that I think maybe where things might have been much more kind of prescriptive in terms of what to buy now we suggest something or we show a lifestyle that might go and inspire you to do something that is 
bit very much in the same spirit as I think we brought to British Vogue as well. I, I've always worked under that. Like it's a mood board. It's not necessarily a kind of shopping list. What do you think HDSI and, and perhaps FT Weekend in general means for the FT brand? Because I think it's becoming more and more valuable, at least in my opinion, because <laughs> I also feel as, as well the FT as a brand is super international as well. I mm -hmm. think perhaps it's the most international of the British papers as well. But what do you think about that, that, that this kind of weekend? Like where do we sit yeah. in the paper? I mean, we're a kind of beautiful island, I think, for the mm. FT. I mean, the FT has this incredibly specific core readership during the week and a reader that is looking for a very specific kind of news coverage, which I suppose is in itself quite a, not a niche interest, but certainly a kind of self-selecting group of people who work professionally and need to know about our markets and companies and things like that. But I think in the last sort of 50 years, that's changed enormously in terms of what the FT offering is. And I think the weekend is this kind of natural extension of offering a kind of much broader range of features about what's going on in the world and what you should know about and hopefully presented in the same authoritarian but also author rather authorita <laughs> authoritative yes. but also creative manner so that whoever picks it up kind of has a digest of all the things that they need to know and the weekend really adds all the other sections that perhaps aren't so kind of like well covered by news and I think you know weekend is maybe a slightly misleading title because obviously a lot of our content now is mixed in with the weekly stuff but we are the things that sort of sit a little bit adjacent to the kind of absolute sort of specific news agenda. Let's talk about some of the amazing features. I know this interview is coming out this Saturday where, you know, where there's a new issue of HDSI as well. Uh, and the rose on the cover as well, which is fantastic. Oh, you yeah. know? And, and again, I haven't seen an interview with, with both of them. So again, it's quite exclusive, you know. So you managed to get some incredible content. So I think a lot of those people, they trust the brand, I feel. I think where we are, I mean, I'm not so foolish to think that HGSI is in itself like this amazing publication that does all these wonderful things and gets exclusives outside of where it sits. So I think it's because our FT readership is so strong that brands are obviously very excited to kind of be involved with HGSI. We're very much um, a kind of conjoined entity. So they get the kind of halo effect of like the Financial Times benediction, I think, by being in HGSI. But obviously... We're the kind of glossy manifestation of all the things that are like nice and, you know, quite civilized. We're not an adversarial publication. HGSI is about how to spend it. It's not about how not to spend it. So we don't do kind of like big investigative pieces where we're kind of like telling people about kind of awful things that are happening. We are about the nice things in, in life. And that's why brands want to be in it. I mean, to your point about the row, that's a conversation I've been having actually weirdly since I left the Star Desk. In, 20, in 2019, which is when the last interview with the row was. And then I moved across the floor and I've pretty much been talking to them ever since about doing another one. So yeah, that's like how long it took, five years. Well, sometimes that's all it takes. And another story, which I think was in a few issues ago, and I think even you wrote in your editor's letter to say, oh, is this a story for us? Was the start guy. Um, you know, oh, no. yes. you know, it's so weird because <laughs> yeah, I, yeah. I was seeing everything everywhere. I was like, but who is the guy? What, yeah. What's going on? But when I saw on the FT, I was like, on your magazine, I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Well, that was thing, an interesting one. I love that. I think the thing for me about being editor of a magazine, which is kind of ostensibly about taste and consumer preferences, is that it can become too narrow focused and... I think sometimes there's real merit in doing things that are stories that aren't necessarily to my taste. 
because it's not called Joe Ellison's HGSI, it's called HGSI. And so I want to cater to a kind of as broader reach of readers as possible. And I did find Gustav Guy, he's a watch influencer for anyone who doesn't know. I did find him sort of like peculiarly fascinating as a character. And, you know, he's making money. So he definitely, he was a good, he, he was a good story in as much as I ended up really wanting to read it and kind of slightly kind of finding it massively distasteful and dubiously funny. But I think that's, you want to sort of like press buttons and, you know, it can't all be kind of beautiful Japanese ceramics. It has to have a, it has to have like breadth. Love that. I love that. Not, I mean, we do love Japanese ceramics, we love but you Japanese know, ceramics, exactly. But we can't just do Japanese ceramics. Exactly. That wouldn't be what we are. And Joel, tell us, give us a little preview of whatever you can say for the rest of the year, because I do think this is a very busy period for HDSI. Of course, that's when people, well, are buying or are planning yeah. things to do next year in terms of travel. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if you can mention this, and also perhaps, do you have any plans for 2024 for the time? Oh my too? God, we do. We're starting to already because I think most of our conversations are kind of leading up to around six months in advance of things. And obviously there are a few big anchor points of next year. You know, we're looking towards Paris. Obviously there's going to be the Olympics. So we're kind of beginning to think about, well, we should be a bit further along probably thinking about what we should be doing with regards to that and how we approach it and sport as a theme and the kind of athletes that are involved and all of the kind of brand tie-ins there. There is loads and loads of opportunity and it's just about like kind of filtering through what we want our message and our kind of what our, our features should be around that. We do a guest edit always in May, which we're talking about at the moment. So that's also a kind of big moment in the year. We've got an arts issue coming out in February, which is well underway. And I quite like for me, just to give things direction, I sometimes quite like themes within themes. So you'll have a themed issue like design or arts or property and you know they're there, but then it's okay, how do we kind of bring this together even further with something that kind of might be a thread through it as well? Thank you very much, Joe. And now to another stack favourite, is Rob Orchard. He is the editor of Delayed Gratification, and this year they celebrated issue 50 of a magazine that pioneered slow journalism. We launched this magazine back in January of 2011, and so we've been working on it throughout 2010. And we were looking out over this media landscape, which was quite barren and desolate. Everybody was convinced that digital was going to be the answer for publishing, but nobody had quite figured out a way to make any money out of digital. And, you know, these big, long-standing print publications were cutting staff and they were cutting freelance rates and they were doing, you know, kind of much less ambitious journalism and local journalism was collapsing and Twitter was just starting to push ahead and there was live blogging. So journalists were basically on the back foot because there were fewer of them with fewer resources and they were being asked to produce more and more, faster and faster, which felt like a recipe for disaster. So we had this idea of a magazine delayed gratification which would return to big stories after the dust had settled and once every three months months, it would kind of winnow out all of the white noise and return to the stuff that really, really mattered. And, you know, it's found an audience for itself, which is lovely. But it was a little bit of a, I'm not sure that we knew when we launched that it, it would work at all. I think we just had a big bee in our bonnets about it. Well, and it really expanded. I mean, you had books, events and all mm. sorts. And, and I actually, I'm very happy to say that I have issue one in front of me as well, which is incredible. I'm sure it's worth a lot of money, but it, it's mine. <laughs> it's my copy, listeners. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, and, and again, what I like about it, of course, I can see a lot of changes, mm. 
But at the same time, it kept the same spirit. I mean, it's not that change that is completely unrecognizable. For example, a good one, I have to say, the font is a bit bigger. Oh, my goodness. What were we playing that? Exactly. With the issue one font? I mean, You need to be quite young to actually be able to read it. So I gave a copy um, to my <laughs> uncle when it had published. And I said to him, oh, what do you think of the magazine? He says, I don't know. I can't read it. And it was something like 7.2 point, which anybody who knows anything about kind of point size will know is ridiculous. But we had so much that we wanted to cram into it. And I mean, I think that's the other thing is that it feels like a very frantic magazine because we crammed about two magazines worth of content into it, which often happens with the first issue because you're so excited about it. You've been thinking about it for such a long time and you don't want any idea to go kind of unpublished. And quite often, so I teach this class in how to launch an independent magazine. And quite often I'll talk about in that the importance of getting your first issue out because until then you can't see what's wrong with it. Like, for example, the fact that nobody can actually read the words. Oh, I, I can. I, I do. I do my. And, and and tell us, you know, you teach how to make an independent magazine. What are the main tips here as well? Because we're talking here about consistency. We're at issue fifty. You know, over a decade. That's that's incredible. We're talking about independent title, even for a more commercial title. It's already quite hard, right? It is. I think you're exactly right about consistency. So people need to know what it is that they're getting. Mm. But I think the the number one thing for me is is niche. So it's filling a niche, it's meeting an audience that is not serviced and that is distinct. So I get a lot of people at magazine classes saying to me, oh, I've got an idea for a magazine. It's a travel magazine, but with a twist, because it's also about food. Or it's a food magazine with a twist, because it's also about fashion. I was like, neither of those are niches. That's far, far, far too broad. So you need something, I think, that you can sum up in just one sentence. Like, what is this thing for? Oh, it's the slow news magazine that returns to big stories after the dust has settled. Okay, so I, I know what that is kind of immediately. Because if you can't do that, it's so difficult to build an audience because we are bombarded with so many messages all the time. So many people wanting a piece of us, so many people wanting our money and our attention, that it, unless you can do that initial cut through, it doesn't really matter how beautiful the magazine is, is not going to flourish, I don't think. Do you think the cover is important? I mean, I love the delayed gratification covers, I have to say, you know, mainly illustration, but I know sometimes you experiment. I, think, I, I believe the last one was a photograph, right? Oh, so it was very similar to a photograph. So the last oh, one was beautiful. So it's an amazing artist and she paints beautiful paintings of motorways. And so it's motorway scenes, which seems like a very kind of uninspiring start. But actually, they're beautiful because each of the paintings has a story behind it. So one of the ones that we put on the cover was about a motorway bridge that she always saw when she was traveling back and forth from the north to visit her, her father. So it was a thing that was imbued with meaning for her. So we've always done, from issue one, when we had Shepherd Ferry, a um, piece of Shepherd Ferry artwork on the cover, and interviewed him inside, we've always had an artist on the cover. And we like some big names. So we've had Ai Weiwei. We've had Grayson Perry, we've had Beatrice Milhazes, but then also we like up and coming artists, people that are not so well known. We like to give them a, a platform. And for issue 50, we've done something very different. It's a, it's a departure for us, which is for the first time ever, we allowed our, allowed, <laughs> we asked our art director, who's a very talented man called Christian, we asked him to design a cover for us and we talked about some different options and of course as you know infographics have always been a big part of what we what we do so he came up with the idea of doing an infographic representation of everything that's ever been in the magazine so this is on the front cover it's an infographic representation of each issue issue by issue it's got these spikes on it showing thematically which themes were covered so things like crime and terrorism environment war u.s politics things like that and the amount of pages given to it so that involved us and 
all the best in graphics involve a ridiculous amount of research. So that involved us going back through every single issue and codifying each feature by its primary theme and then saying how many pages it took up. And so there's a key to it. And for those of the listeners who end up getting a copy of the magazine, there's a key to it on page seven where you can just sort of see these big stories coming and going. And it's kind of fascinating because you can see the spikes where the Brexit referendum came in, where major events in terms of climate change happened, the Arab Spring sort of waxed and waned, elements of global terrorism, the election of Donald Trump, COVID-19, Ukraine, all of these stories that came in came out and you can just see from this infographic when they happened. A very random question, but do you guys accept commissions for infographics? Because you do it very well. And, you know, even when I read newspapers or, or some news magazines, they can be quite confusing, I have to say. Well, we, we have There's done. clarity. Yeah, we have yeah. done. I think um, we, we do do the occasional commission. The main thing that we do is we go and teach how to make infographics. Um, mm. So we do that in big organizations quite a lot. Mm. And I think the thing about infographics is that they are, it's not complicated but it is a bit mysterious and so what we'll do over the course of two or three hours is explain the kind of the principles and talk about what you can do to really make your infographics cut through and what we often say is that you're much better off with an infographic that's like a 3d pie chart made in microsoft paint as long as it's got a beautiful and interesting human story at the heart of it. That's the thing that makes them kind of sticky. That's the thing that makes people want to spread them around. Obviously, it's lovely if they're beautiful, but we see so many examples of people wasting time and attention, marketing budget and, you know, design and all these different things on making these bells and whistles infographics that don't cut through because they don't contain a single relatable human story at the heart of them. Tell us about the celebration. I mean, I have here, of course, it's a special cover, but what I like about it as well, it's also a normal issue, right? Yeah. I mean, it's also, you're not deviating so much. It's not like the best of delayed gratification. Perhaps in the future, might <laughs> might release a book about that. You know, but uh, so tell us, was that the idea as well? Yeah, so we went through all sorts of different ideas for mm. issue 50. And so actually, the big celebration was initially going to be for 10 years, our 10-year anniversary. Mm. But that fell sort of smack in the middle of the global coronavirus pandemic. Mm. So it wasn't a very celebratory time. And so we wanted to do something for this. And we did go through all sorts of different ideas. We were originally going to do a special cover using a special type of print so that it was going to be a kind of a reflective cover or we were going to use a different background colour to make it stand out. We had ideas for gatefolds and all sorts of things like that. And then actually fundamentally we just thought it's probably not really about bells and whistles. It's just about putting out a really strong issue. And I think this is one of our strongest. It's filled with interesting stories. We have an extraordinary piece of reportage from a journalist of ours who's based in Turkey mm -hmm. in the aftermath of the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria. And she travelled around the country visiting the afflicted zones immediately in the aftermath, like literally the day after the earthquake struck, but then also several months afterwards and tells the story of how things changed and how the political story evolved. We've got a fascinating story about the future of virtual travel. And this might be of interest. So this is fascinating to me. So this idea that we're at a meeting point of technologies now where it might be the case in a few years' time that you say, right, we could spend several thousand pounds on flying to Lanzarote for a week and sort of going to a three-star hotel or whatever, or we could spend a few hundred pounds and we could enter a sort of an uh, AR suite and we could don all of this gear, including haptics, including olfactory units, including strapping yourself onto a, a special harness and using these multi-directional treadmills. And we could go as a group, as a family or as a group of friends. And on the first day, we could visit all of the most interesting sites in the world. So we could take a tour around the Taj Mahal with no crowds and we could get as up close to the action as we want to. And it would feel like we were genuinely there. And then in the afternoon, we could go canoeing down the Amazon. And then the next day, we could go 
go skiing in the Alps. And then, do you know what? In the afternoon, we wouldn't even have to stay on the Earth. We could go to some triple mooned planet and, you know, like walk along with dinosaurs. And, and you know, so this this converging of technologies that may mean that actually anybody is able to effectively travel anywhere. And because they're so impressive now, their brains will register that as having actually taken place. Thank you very much, Rob. Another highlight of the year. I had the pleasure to welcome in studio the great James Don't. Yes, the founder of Don't Books. And also CEO of Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, managing director. He was telling me about the success of his bookstores this year and I'm sure in 2024 as well. I think, sadly, there have been, well, a decade at least of, of decline at Barnes & Noble and sort of chain booksellers lost their way. Borders, the other big one, obviously went bankrupt and disappeared. Barnes & Noble more or less left as the only sort of substantial bookseller in the United States and it's always, with every passing year, closing a substantial number of shops. And that's part of the function of having you know this this long history and and many of the buildings and and properties being extremely old so you're always going to be closing a reasonable number landlords want to redevelop the buildings just get too old locations change their demographics and things and fall out of favor malls uh, disappear and and with it the Barnes and Noble that's attached to it so typically Barnes and Noble will close 20ish stores every year the problem was they weren't opening any Luckily, we have both changed the bookselling fortunes of the overall business, which then gives one the, I, th I think it gives one the financial confidence, but it what it really does is give you the psychological confidence to open new shops again and to do so at scale, because if you want to grow, you've got to open up 20 to stand still, and then you need to open quite a lot more than that if, if you want to grow in any substantial way, which we do. And that's to repair, I think, the damage of, of the last uh, 10 odd years. There is plenty of demand for bookshops. The bookshops that we have are doing extremely well. If you become a good bookseller, you will find yourself full of customers. And therefore, it makes sense to reopen shops in locations that have been closed and actually to explore new ones as well. In terms of location, the United States is it quite spread out in the country or perhaps are you focused on the East Coast, West Coast? I'm quite curious, where are the Barnes & Noble's plans for the U.S.? Well, both the existing estate is, in some ways, it's predictable. Um, mm. A lot on the East Coast, as you say, a lot on the West Coast. And then in the major metropolitan areas, you know, we have a lot in each of the big cities, really. Though also, if you knew where the, the real estate people, the property people were located and where they lived, you would suddenly understand why there seemed to be very great concentrations in the Atlanta area, for example, in Georgia, or, or in Dallas, Houston, in Texas. We've got in both of those places large numbers of shops. But basically, we're in East Coast, West Coast and then a presence in literally every single state in the United States. Every single um, one? Every single one. But also some sort of curious absences, um, none in Washington, D.C. itself, plenty in Virginia, more or less deserted the metropolitan city centers other than New York City. Um, so again, getting back into those kind of locations seems extremely important. Tell us about some of the changes you've implemented or still want to implement, because, of course, it's a long process. I mean, there's so many shops. I mean, it's not I'm sure it's not an easy task, but the shops itself, they changed. I mean, because, of course, it's a bookstore, but they were selling all sorts of things. You know, they were selling, you know, batteries, a lot of board games, toys, which I'm, I'm sure some of them are still selling it. But there are more books, right? That's perhaps the secret of the success, too. 
I think certainly becoming a, a good bookseller is a secret to mm. selling more books if you are a, <laughs> a bookseller. And sadly, that mission, I think, had been diluted and the business itself had been run by retailers. And retailers in all other sectors have a you know, simple proposal, which is we decide what is the best form of chemist or women's clothing or whatever it is that you do. And then you replicate that precisely and identically across all of your stores. That's what Zara does. That's what Boots does, Walgreens, Best Buy, Curry's, whoever it might be, whatever you're selling, you decide on your retail model and you execute it precisely and identically across the nation. And that's what customers expect of you. The trouble with books is if you do that with books, you end up with some sort of identikit type bookstores, same books in the same place is really very boring. Trying to create the sort of everyman bookshop, I think is a mistake. And what we've done is decentralize very substantially, leaving the responsibility for how they merchandise and which books they put where and how they replenish their books entirely in the hands of each of the bookselling teams in each store. And then as you say, really being quite rigorous around what are the other things that we sell alongside books and being sure that they complement books, which is a simple enough test. And do they challenge the mind? Are they about writing and paper? That is a, a decent test. And if they don't pass that, we shouldn't have them in our store, which is why things like batteries have, uh, are no longer <laughs> in there and, and we no longer sell sort of great mounds of drinking water and, and the other things that, frankly, also visually made our shops much, much less attractive. But really, bookselling is around individual booksellers deciding what their customers want and presenting those books, which will be different in each store, as attractively as they possibly can. It's I love this idea that you're giving more freedoms to the stores to, you know, to showcase the books they want, because perhaps someone in Dallas might be different from someone in New York as well. Is that something that you've learned here in London with Don't Books as well? Because I also feel that the don't bookshops, they are quite personalized in a way as well. Yes, I, I for uh, more than 20 years, 21, mm. 22 years, um, I sat in Maribyrn High Street and sold books out of Daunt Books, and that was my shop. And mm. we opened up uh, new Daunt Books here and there, largely because people in Maribyrn High Street got sort of slightly fed up and, and wanted to do their own thing. But each of those sort of crafted their own shop. And, and the one in Hampstead was different to the one in Holland Park. And, and so it went on. So I, and you know, frankly, I had not a great deal of interest in, in what they were up to. I, I was only interested in what I was up to and my customers. And I took that ethos then first to Waterstones. And Waterstones effectively had gone bankrupt. And by putting in that ethos and that book selling philosophy, Waterstones began to succeed and, and in fact succeeded tremendously well. And now that we're doing it in the United States, we find that actually if you let booksellers get on with their trade, they are to varying degrees good at their craft and where they're good, you do extremely well. And where you do badly, you, you need to go and get the neighboring bookseller to go and help. So you keep it local, keep it focused on the individual teams. And to the extent that we centrally do anything, it is to support the stores, sometimes just in very boring things like money to replace the light bulbs and mm. fix the escalators or whatever else from the fabric of the store, but also just to challenge and articulate the principles of good bookselling and, and challenge the teams to meet those. What's your relation at the moment with with the British operation? Of course, I mentioned Don't Books, but yes, Waterstones as well, which is the largest UK chain. So we're talking about big numbers here as well, right? Yes, I mean, I spend now most of my time in, in the United States because Barnes & Noble is at an early stage of, mm. of change and evolution. And that's where the 
focus is. Waterstones is effectively run by other people, but I still, you know, I have the title mm. of CEO there, so I have some responsibilities and keep a strong eye on it. But also my heart still lies with Dawn Books. Do you have to adapt to the taste as well? Because I, 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 I don't know how much they are similar, perhaps, the the American taste for books, you know, when you look at the bestseller list, for example, and the British one. Are there a lot of more similarities or differences in your view? I think there are far more differences within each country mm. than there are between the countries, but mm. there are very considerable differences. Mm. And that's why it's so important that you give autonomy to each individual bookstore to do what they want. But to all intents and purposes, we sell the same books being published by the same publishers on the same day, different covers, different prices, but otherwise it's the same. If a book is a bestseller in the United States, it will be in the United Kingdom and vice versa. And you know, I think you know, we both in both countries read the English language and the talent is drawn from across the world. It's, it's by no means just um, US and UK writers, of course. So for us, it is sort of finding the new, turning over the new stones and, and finding the new talent. And I think that's what good booksellers do. So I think there is a bit of learning between ourselves, between Waterstones and, and Barnes and & Noble to a degree. But also we are constantly on the eye of what the independents are up to. And, you know, if Don Books has got a window and is championing a book, you can be pretty sure Waterstones will be looking at it closely, reading it, and, and then individual Waterstones sort of will be following and, and selling the book. And that sort of guerrilla nature of bookselling at the moment, I think, is very effective. Thank you very much, James. And thank you again to everyone for listening to The Stack. It's been a pleasure. And I'm wishing everyone a wonderful new year. I'll be back in the new year, of course. And a special thanks to Jack Jewers, who edits the show marvelously. Yes, he deserves that beautiful word there. If you have any comments or queries, feel free to write to me, Fernando, at fpandmonaco.com. We'll be back next Saturday at 10 a.m. London time. You've been listening to The Stack. I'm Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Until next time, it's goodbye from me. Thank you.